Hey folks, welcome to the podcast. Hope your summer is off to a good start. Michael Shelley here. Today's guest, Gilbert O'Sullivan, somebody I've wanted on the program for a while. He does not do the promo rounds, I guess, so much because it turns out he has not played a gig in the United States in over 40 years. So we'll find out the answer to why that is and a bunch of other stuff. Long, interesting career, interesting guy, some legal hassles. The usual showbiz up and down, just another kind of version of it. Uh, I never get tired talking to people. I never get tired in hearing the variations of, of, of how you got in show business and what your experience was. Uh, if you want to contact me, Michael S, WFMU.org, say hi. Some upcoming guests I'm working on, keep your eyes over at WFMU.org slash Michael for the list. Of course, the archives are there as well. And that's about it. Hope the rest of your summer goes well. I will talk with you soon. Here it is, me and Gilbert O'Sullivan. There's Gilbert O'Sullivan, and I promise he will be in New York uh, Tuesday, July 9th at the uh, City Winery and at uh, the World Cafe Live in Philadelphia, Wednesday, July 10th. Uh, welcome to the program, and good morning. How you doing? Good morning, Michael. Nice to be talking to you. And uh, I'm really, too, I'm really excited about uh, this visit because it's it's 45 years since I last toured in America, which is a long story. <laughs> I sort of want to, want to get into that, but the itching question on my mind right now is listening to Get Down is what exactly, what keyboard are you using on Get Down? Well, I'm playing a, a grand piano, uh, but my um, orchestrator, um, arranger, played uh, Fender Rhodes. So it's a, it's a Fender Rhodes, because there's no guitar, it's just a bass guitar, drums, and me on normal piano, and uh, uh, the arranger on... Um, on Fender Rhodes. Ah, so when you're writing a song, I assume you sit in your house, you write it on a piano. Do you hear the finished record in your head, or does that just evolve in the studio? No, it's, it's, it's everything has evolved around finishing the song, Michael, and then then you go to the studio, and it's it's pretty much set out. There's no real change that takes place other than the add, adding of the instruments, guitars, bass, and drums. I mean, the interesting thing was we were meant to have a guitar player on the session for this, but um, he wasn't there, so it just meant that it was the bass, the drums, and, and the two of us on piano. And, um, yeah, it's, it sounded really... So it's kind of good like that, because, you, you know, when I wrote the song, I'm really happy with it, and producer's happy with it, and then we go in and... And we just make a record. And uh, Laurie Holloway was the one who played the Fender Roach. Laurie Holloway used to be the uh, the MD for Engelbert Humperdinck in the oh. way that Johnny Spence was the was the MD for Tom Jones. And so Laurie's, um, I use him. I do a, a lot of work with him. And uh, he, so he plays um, electric piano. Yeah. How funny if they had the guitar shown up, we'd have a different conversation right now. Uh, 14 UK top 40 hits, a bunch of US top 40 hits, three US top 10s, a couple of number ones. Quite quite a career, a lot to talk about. Uh, you're born mm. in Ireland. Uh, you ended up in Swindon, which I believe is just uh, an hour or so west of London or so. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's about right. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah you can, that's do, right. But you can still consider yourself Irish? Well, yeah, you never lose it. My, strangely enough, my brothers and sisters, they've lost their accent, but my mother has retained her accent. We left when I was just seven years old because the grass was greener. My father was in the butch- was a butcher. The jobs were more opportunities in the UK, so we came over. So I, I, everybody tells me I've, I still have a sort of an Irish brogue in, 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 my, in my voice, which is interesting, being raised pretty much in Swindon. Hmm. All my musical background stems from really growing up in Swindon. You talk about your background. Your age is perfect. You're like, 
around 10 years old when rock and roll becomes a thing and you're about 16 when the Beatles become in these are like both ages where you're super impressionable were your parents did they listen to music in the house and do you remember rock and roll and the Beatles coming into your life well, the interesting thing, Michael, is that, that I was too early for Buddy, Buddy Holly. I mean, I got into him later, but I was too, and Elvis. So my, my older sister, two or three years older than me, she had parties with friends who were going to play Elvis and Buddy Holly. I wasn't into that. I got into the Everly Brothers. I liked straightforward pop music. I mean, I, I loved Carole King's Never Rains, uh, Always Rains in, in, in uh, September. So, I mean, I was into pop music, and I would hear a lot of American records on the radio. So, but, but it was the Everly Brothers that really, I was a huge Everly Brothers fan. And then, of course... In England, we had Cliff Richard and the Shadows about 1960, and that was a that was a big thing for us. But really, what in, in a sense changed my musical life was, of course, the, the emergence of the Beatles, because not only did they write great songs without any musical knowledge, I mean, they couldn't read music, uh, but they were able to write great songs. They looked different, sounded great, very unusual. I mean, the Shadows before them were an instrumental group, which we all loved, but the Beatles, they all sang. Uh, and uh, you know, from then on, everybody wanted to be in a band. And and I, my first band, I was a drummer. And um, and then you know, it develops from there. I mean, I'm at college uh, as an art student, and and the music is beginning to become more. You know, beginning to write a little, starting to write songs, and with the band, and eventually I get to more serious bands, and and then. You know, it kind of takes off from there, and it's building all the time until uh, at a point where I decide that I will make a career out of it. When, how did you pick up piano? Did you just pick it up yourself? Well, it's the old cliche of, of working-class families had very little money, but they always had, a piano, <laughs> always had a piano in their house. I think the logic behind it was that if one of the children could learn to play the piano, then they could earn a few bob in the pub at night. <laughs> I think so. The piano was always there, so that was great for me because when I started to play more, I had piano lessons. My mother sent me to piano lessons. My mother was the musical, had a, the, I mean, not so much an influence, but music was Irish get-togethers and whatever. Not my father, um, but um, but I had piano lessons. I didn't really like the piano lessons, the theory of music. I, I was more playing by ear. And when I started to write a little bit more, we had a garden shed. We lived in a sort of council house five or six houses all together, quite small, in a small little garden. And mum allowed me to put the piano in the garden shed, upright piano. So that, that was great for me because it gave me this, sort of, I could play my Bob, sing like Bob Dylan, you know, bang away and annoy the neighbors. <laughs> Just to annoy the neighbors. I mean, there's no, there's no soundproofing in a garden shed. But they were really good. Nobody ever, I mean, I had a shoe thrown at, thrown at the roof once, but I think, <laughs> but they, they, they were very tolerant of me because I, because I used to remember on a Sunday afternoon when the men in the other houses would be out uh, digging the garden, uh, planting potatoes, whatever, I would have I've done crazy for a couple of hours singing my head off and suddenly I'd look out the window and they'd still be in the garden and I, and I was really embarrassed about the fact that I'd been singing my head off and I kind of wanted to wait until they went inside before I ran in. <laughs> But it was great to have that because that, that allowed me the freedom to sit at the piano coming from college, sit there. And, and uh, you know, I was a huge Bob Dylan fan and my Beatles songs and a lot of my early songs were very influenced by uh, the Beatles. Uh, it's it a great period. 
So you do get signed to, I think, a publishing contract initially, right, over at CVS? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, here's an interesting thing. Is the, 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 as I said earlier, I st- the school band was my first band, and doing all the searches stuff. And then my second band were a, a, a youth club band, and they wanted to play Buddy Holly. And I said, no way, Buddy, no, no, I never got into Buddy Holly then. So I said, we must do searches stuff, contemporary stuff. And then the third band was a serious band, because Rick's Blues, uh, a great friend of mine, taught me to play blues piano. And I used to go to his, his grandma house where they had kind of, he taught me great blues piano and we formed a band called Rick's Blues and Rick was a serious music I mean he had stuff by Bill Black and all these Bill Doggett and all these kind of people I would play him a Beatles album and I'd say listen to the Beatles playing singing Roll Over Beethoven and he'd say oh, listen to Chuck Berry the original so, so he was one of those people that had that, that, that had all insight in, into all kinds of music, whereas I was just on the pop end. But, but he played the keyboard. I was a drummer in the band. And we were really very good, a semi-professional band. So this is 1966. And so we, we, Rick and I wanted to go professional. I'd, I was writing the songs, the commercial-type songs. Rick was writing kind of other album-type songs. But the bass player and the guitarist were on apprenticeships, and they were frightened of giving up their apprenticeship to go professional. So that meant that Rick and I had to decide. Rick needed to be in a band, and I, I, I didn't want to be in a band. I wanted to be on my own. So that meant that Rick went off, and he, he ended up forming Supertramp, and then I went off and formed me. <laughs> so, that, so that's pretty much what happened there. Yeah. Uh, you did put out some early early singles that... Mm that I love and but but eventually you you're sort of not happy with what's happening over at CBS and you contact Gordon Mills you mentioned I think Engelbert Humperdinck and Tom Jones earlier who Gordon worked with uh why him why did you see yourself fitting in with those guys I didn't. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I had an image, you know, going back to the Beatles, the impression they left on me, they looked different. They didn't have to have Beatle haircuts. They didn't have to have collars, jackets, but they did. So musically and the way they looked had a huge influence on me. So when I came up to London to make it after Rick went off to, to join a band, um, yes, publishers were interested in my songs, but they didn't like the image that I created, cap and boots. Charlie, I mean, Charlie Chaplin was a huge influence for me. I used to wear a Cha- Charlie Chaplin bobtail jacket, cap and boots, long trousers, one one longer than the other and hobnail boots I looked freakish but it was but I was determined to do I was determined to do something that was different and I knew the other side of the coin was that my songwriting was serious and so therefore while they could mock me and and tell me that I looked ridiculous they, they realized that there was something in my songs so I was always making headway I kept the image because there was no way I was going to lose. But going in and out of record companies, after CBS, I went to another record company and they made promise after promise and it, nothing was really happening and I was getting frustrated. So I figured that the best thing to do was to get a hold of a top manager. So who was out there? Robert Stigwood managed the Bee Gees. And then there's Gordon Mills who managed Tom Jones and Engelbert Humberley. Now, I, don't want, I didn't want to be a Tom Jones type singer. How could I be when I looked the way I did? But anyway, he was a hugely successful manager and he managed solo artists, whereas opposed to Robert Stigwood who managed the band. So that's, I just sent him a tape and um, his secretary said that when he saw the picture, he threw it in the bin because <laughs> he, he thought the image was stupid why somebody would send him looking the way that I did. Uh, bear in mind that nobody in America really saw this image. So this, what I'm telling you now is pretty much what happened in Europe. You got to see me when I looked fairly normal. But anyway, he liked the songs because Gordon is an ex-songwriter. He, he co-wrote It's Not Unusual. He'd written hits for other people. So he, he was struck by the songs. And he took the, uh, and invited me to his home, heard some more songs. He needed to be sure that I could write more. And then it kind of took off from there. And I hadn't written Nothing Rhymed, which was the first success, um, when he signed me. But that's 
that became the first recording session. And the magic thing about that was I'd never been in a studio where I had an enjoyable experience. I never liked the first CBS sessions. I didn't like being told what to do and not having any input. Second, the record, second record company, the same. And so therefore, with Gordon, the first recording with Nothing Rhymed and, and another song we did in three hours, I just came away elated. I didn't know if it would be a hit, but I just felt wonderful. And then, because of his power, because of the influence he had, he was able to take the image, which he didn't like. I mean, he said, you know, I don't like that image, but... You know, you're a good writer, and I think that that's where the success will come. So that's that's pretty much how it um, how it developed. So let's talk about the songwriting process. I mean, do you mm. do you write in a notebook? Do you just sit down at a piano? Do you come up with music first, melody first? How does it happen? Well, it's a brill building mentality. I love the Blue Building and the Don Kirshner rooms where Goffling King, Sadaka Greenfield, Neil Diamond would sit in a room, try and write songs, nine to five, clock in at nine o'clock off at five. That's how I, that's the discipline that I apply when I write songs. I'll sit in the music room for nine to five, try and come up with a melody. The hardest thing to come up with are, are good melodies. Uh, I think you're born with an ability to do lyrics and everybody can write words, uh, but it's not that easy to, to write good melodies. That comes through the influence of the people like the Beatles and Dylan, that's where you're able to to be influenced by their great melodies and then translate it into you be, uh, hopefully coming up with original melodies yourself. So that's the discipline. I sit down, write the melodies, work at it. If I come up with a good melody, Michael, I, I put it on, I use cassettes, I just put it in the trunk and then I sit there and come up with more melodies. And what happens is that when an album is to be made, uh, whoever I'm working with, I'll pick up the melodies appropriate. Then I'll sit down and write the words, and, and uh, that's that's nine times out of ten how I write. That's a super interesting way of approaching it. But you're, you've always been very prolific. I mean, all those early singles have non-LP B-sides. There's, you know, lots and lots of songs out there. And they all sound like you to me. You know, there, there's a very identifiable uh, style and yeah. po- point of view. And I assume, again, that that's just or- organic. That's just not something you, you, you... I mean, is Gilbert O'Sullivan, because it's not quite your real name, is that a character that you play or is that... No, no, no. I mean, my name is O'Sullivan, so when it came to the stage name, I didn't call myself Gilbert O'Sullivan. When I had the image, the cap and the boots, the chaplain jacket, I called myself Gilbert. Uh, and, and But if you looked at the record, what I liked about just calling myself Gilbert was that if you looked at the record, the 45, you'd see the writer as O'Sullivan. So people could call him, somebody might have bought the single by Gilbert and then looked at the record and said, oh, it was written by somebody called O'Sullivan. That's interesting. So I kind of liked that. But Gordon Mills said, uh, you know, call yourself Gilbert O'Sullivan. So, so that. So that that's pretty much what it is. Uh, I mean, everything, you know, this, songwriting is everything. Uh, I mean, it's the key to, I wouldn't be talking to you w- without, the, without the fact that I wrote those songs. It's because I don't have a great voice, but I have a distinctive voice. And I get away with singing my own songs. That's why I don't do covers. Uh, but, but I'm prolific because I love to write. So it, it's the joy I have of songwriting to this day. Um, I get great joy out of sitting down trying to come up with a melody. It's a, it's a wonderful challenge. And, to, and, and if I achieve it, I'm, I'm really happy. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's going to be successful in the marketplace, but the, the success for me has always been writing what I think is a good song. If I write what I think is a good song that I have total control over, 
I, I, you know, I go to bed happy at night. <laughs> uh, so the the first record comes out uh, himself in 1971, comes out in, I think, 72 in the U.S., a slightly yeah. uh, different version of it. And uh, Alone Again Naturally, number three in the U.K., number one in the U.S., I think six weeks at number mm. one in the U.S. That's a huge hit. It's also mm. a song that is a was a big hit around the world. Uh, you know, some songs have that international uh something that everyone can relate to around the world. And that was one. And I read a quote from you and maybe this isn't an accurate quote. Please tell me for me, it was just one song I had written. Did you really not know that that song was going to touch people? No, you shouldn't know that, Michael. That's a dangerous area to be in. If you felt you knew it, then every time you write, you'd be wanting to get that feeling. What did the, the, the alone again was it? You know, I wrote. I was 23 years old. I remember uh, Neil Diamond talking to a journalist because he did a, a really nice cover of it a few years ago, and he wrote me a letter and and said how much he really liked the song, and he said he, he found it really unusual that somebody of 22 or 23 years of age could write a song like that. You know, for me, you know, I'd been writing for a few years before that, and when I wrote Alone Again, I was in the, a house that Gordon Mills owned. I was able to give up my job as a postal clerk, and to be able to write full-time was wonderful. And so uh, he owned this bungalow, so I shared it with another singer. And, I, and I'd write. So at the time Alone Again was written, it was just one of a few songs that I was writing at that time. Now, the recording session took place, and the songs that were recorded in the three-hour session this time was Alone Again and Out of the Question. And everybody said the single should be Out of the Question, because they said that that was the commercial one. People liked Alone Again, but they said, meh, I'm not sure it would be a hit. Uh, but in the end, I think Gordon decided that even if it wasn't a hit, a hit in, 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 in commercial terms, it was, it was a good song, so we should go with it. And the rest is history, because in your neck of the woods, I mean, it was a DJ in a certain area in the States who picked up on it, uh, and then, then it spread. So luck, timing, judgment all came into play. So you can write a good song, Michael, and it never sees the light of day. Um, so you must always bear that in mind. So the key is to be happy with the song you've written. I was happy with it on again, but I had no idea if it would be a success. I hoped it would be. I keep a little review from a, uh, an English music paper of that, uh, which, I, which I have on my door here. And it, it basically, it, it says, let's see if I've got it here. Uh, see, I've got it on the... No, it's there. And basically just, oh, another nice little tune from Gilbert uh, playing the piano. Could be a hit if it gets enough play and that kind of thing. So that was, that's pretty much how it was treated. But, the, you know, but then things happen it get, and it becomes particularly in America uh, where it became very special. And to this day, it means more to, to people in America than it does, I think, anywhere in the world. Which is really nice. Yeah. Uh, and let's clear up that the lyrics, I mean, it's not really about you, your family. It doesn't really describe what happened to you and your parents. And uh, you were not feeling suicidal? No. I mean, to be a good lyricist, you don't have to experience. I think to have an understanding of this subject matter. I mean, I love the joy of writing lyrics. After I mentioned earlier, I write the melodies and then I sit down to write the words. I never know at times what the song is going to be about unless there is a title there. And that's, that's fascinating. So you end up with a story that you had no idea what it was going to be about. But if it's a subject, I, I like dealing with relationships. I like those kind of situations. I, I find them very interesting. So I think with the story of Aloning is, I just, I, what makes, what I hope makes me a good lyricist is that it's an understanding of that scenario. If I get into that, and my mother was still alive, that my father had died, 
and and so and I was never stood up in the church but I think I had an understanding of what it must be like to do that and I think that's what makes you a good lyricist so you don't have to experience it you know, people always say our songs based on experience my heart's never really on my sleeve if I do anything that's personal it'll be subtle it would be in there but in a kind of subtle way not not an obvious way mm. that's very interesting did, did folks uh, who did not know that meet you and think oh this poor man you know was that a, uh, an experience that you had yeah yeah of course many people assumed that it was based on personal experience which is fine I mean I think again that that, that means a lot to me because it meant that the understanding that I think I had in talking about it I mean you're, you're talking about somebody who's committing suicide I mean I, it, it doesn't dawn on me when I'm doing that whoops this, this could be I mean I'm just writing what I think is a good song I'm really into it I get into lyrics. I have a Leonard Cohen approach to lyrics because you, the average song needs about three verses and, and a couple of middle eights. Maybe it's the one middle eight that you repeat. And so what I end up doing, starting with blank paper, is that I'll end up writing six verses and three middle eights. And somebody's tapping me on my shoulder saying, look, for goodness sake, you're never going to use those extra middle eights. You're never going to use the extra verses. Why are you still sitting there doing it? So that, that's an interesting aspect to the, the writing process. You start with nothing you're not quite sure what it's going to be about but when you get into the subject you write more than you're ever going to use <laughs> yeah uh it's it's a great song and it's it's funny i've only done karaoke once and that was one of the songs i sang and uh it's a it's just a winner yeah it's a bullseye you know you really hit the bullseye on that one i want to remind folks that gilbert o'sullivan is our guest and he is coming to town for the first time in 45 years to the city winery in manhattan on tuesday july 9th and to the world cafe live in philadelphia uh on wednesday the 10th uh why just briefly why 45 years you, you don't like to travel it seems like you love to play it's it's an interesting story it's a classic uh, story because it was a a, a classic disaster my, my only tour in america i had toured in the uk remember my background for touring was not i mean i came up learning to write songs in my on my own i didn't sort of have a background of, of appearing in clubs and and then getting a reputation and improving as a singer my reputation started through just the writing and so uh, performing for me it didn't actually uh, first success was in 1970 so i didn't actually tour until 1972 so from 72 to 73 i was touring around the uk and europe then learning albeit not that well and then we, we went to america and gordon had the choice gordon Mills had the choice with tom jones being so big and then got being so big here's what he had to decide do we let Ray uh, go and support the Moody Blues, who are massive? Does he go on as a supporter, or do we let him go out on his own like Tom and Engelbert? And the fatal mistake was that they put me out on my own. Now, Carnegie Hall, we sold out, and that was wonderful. But when we headed east and did large 15,000 seaters, we weren't doing great business. And the tour got pulled before we went to the West Coast. I was taken out in the middle of the night, and that was the end of it. So it was a wonderful disaster because it was a wonderful, we had a lovely orchestra, we had private playing, no, no amount of money was spent. But, but having record success with million sellers like Claire alone again and Get Down, it doesn't guarantee bums on seats. So the mistake made was I should have started by being a support act, but they didn't do that. And I had no idea about, I mean, I'm, you know, talk about songwriting, yes, but touring, I have no idea. I just do what I'm told. I assume Gordon and Cole would put me in the right direction. So it was a disaster. So after that, it just became an issue. And late 70s, I broke up with Gordon, uh, huge legal problems, which led into the 80s. And then 1990, I pretty much got back on my feet and started to tour again. By the end of the 90s, I have a brilliant band. 
and we tour all over Japan, Europe. But in the last 15 years, we have tried every year to get into America, but they've always said it's too much. You, you, your band, we can't afford to take the nine musicians that you have with you, two backing singers. And it's, so that's the reason we weren't able to get in. This time, Michael, we're able to get in because we've been touring since the release of the new album in August, just myself and my guitar player. So it's very intimate, up close and personal, and it's worked out really nice. And that's why uh, you've given us the opportunity to come over. <laughs> gotcha. And you'll be here uh, uh, very, very soon. Uh, you had a bunch of hit sim- uh, other hit singles, and um, uh, Claire is one that mm. I think that, that, that folks still remember. I mean, we're talking about, you know, over 10 million uh, records total get down which we heard earlier another mm. one of those songs a hit around the world uh mm. and and then you had that problem with with gordon where you mm. um where you had a, a lawsuit I, I i believe i read that at the end of that you sort of won the the the, the court decided yeah. in your favor and awarded you yep. a, a lump sum of money a, a huge sum of money well, did did that Getting a giant sum of money, did, did that change your life? Did you go buy a car or a fish tank or something you'd always wanted? No, I, I never came into the business to make money. I mean, I was earning 10 pound a week as a postal clerk. And when Gordon Metz took me on and I was allowed to, to, to ride 24 hours a day in his bungalow, he said, how much money do you want? I said, 10 pound. I said, brilliant, <laughs> 10 pound. Because, you know, I was very naive in that area. I, I, you know, if, I get, if somebody writes to me and says they want to be a success in this business to make money, I, I show them the door. You, we come into this business to make music. Now, you're not stupid enough to believe that if you're successful, you won't earn something. So I was comfortably off even when I broke up with Gordon. I didn't sue Gordon Mills for, for money. I sued Gordon because throughout the 70s, when Gordon signed me up, I, I was signed as a publisher to April Music, who signed me in 1967. 67, they signed me for five years. So when Gordon took me in 1970, there was still two years left of the April Music contract. So he did a deal with April Music. But April Music had said to me in 1969, we're now allowing writers to have their own companies within the main company. So in other words... What April were proposing was that young songwriters were being given the chance to have their own little company within and to give them to give them a share of the publishing. And so when I said to Gordon, you know, that, that, um, April said I could have that. And he said, well, I'm not going to give you that because you're not successful. If you are successful, I'll give you that. So 1972, I said to Gordon, I need news on me getting my little publishing company. He said, eh, don't worry, you're going to get it. 73, 74, same thing. So when Gordon and I broke up with a handshake in 1976, sorry, in 77, I said to Gordon as I left his room, I said, do I st- about my little publishing company, interest in my publishing, will I still get it? He said, yeah, you go into the office next Monday because this was a weekend, and Bill Smith, the, the chairman of the company, uh, will sort it out for you. I go in on the following Monday, and I say to him, he knew that I'd left Gordon. Uh, they, they, they were not happy. He basically said to me, you can go and get lost. You're not getting it. So that meant... I came out then, I, I, who did I know? I'd never, all my legal stuff had been done by MEM. Everything to do with my career was to do in that building. But I rang somebody I knew, Gary Davison, whose father was Harold Davison, very um, important uh, Asian impresario. So he put me in touch with uh, uh, lawyers. So I, I went to see them and I said, look, I was promised something, that's all I want. And, but what, what happens, Michael, is that, that when you go to court after a year, lots of kind of worms erupts, there's conflict of interest, all this kind of stuff came out. And I ended up not only getting 
uh, the interest that I wanted, but I got all the publishing and I got all the master recordings, none of which I asked for. So I'm, I'm grateful for that, but, uh, but I wish it hadn't uh, happened and that, that all the hurt that it caused, uh, I, I regret that um, hugely. Yeah, well, it's very clear that you are songwriting is what you were born to do and that what you love to do mm. and cer- certainly not in it for the money but it having money is 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 better than not having it right of course i mean i'm not complaining i mean i was able to help my family uh i you know i'm, I'm not i don't drive so i don't need it you know my, my brother works for me and my daughter now works for me so things like that it's it, we're good i mean it's just financially of course my songwriting allows me to be financially uh secure um, so I mean, I'm, yeah, but I don't, I don't worry about it. I mean, I, I have no financial worries. Songwriting for me is what I, what is, is what I love to do, and the rest is taken care of. Because I own my publishing, of course, good things come in, particularly in America for films and whatever. It's and the people in charge of that look after it really well. So I'm happy. I mean, BMI are, are, are collect for me, so it's fine. But I mean, I'm not. You know, that's nothing to do with, you know, when you're sitting there writing songs, money is the furthest thing from your mind, and so it should be. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's one other legal thing I want to talk about. I find it very fascinating. Biz Marquis uh, mm. used a sample of Alone Again mm. Naturally, and mm. and this was, I guess, the early days when folks, when there just was no precedent of what to do with it, but was the idea that folks would sample your recording and and not pay for it, was that was that the idea? Well, no, the, the the premise was that was that Bismarcky, who was the Jay Z of his day, uh, requested uh, the usage of uh, to sample alone again. I mean, I was not really aware. It was the early days of, of sampling, as you know. Right. So therefore, and we said, well, let's hear what he wants to do. So they what they did was they they sample the intro, and then he raps over it. And uh, he's a comic rapper. I didn't know that. So I, I I said, no, I'm sorry. Alone again is the one song on my catalog I refuse. As, even as I speak to you today, uh, we've just turned recently turned down uh, a film request to use Alone Again on a comedy film, and, and no way, Alone Again can never. In, I, my contract states that with my publisher that they, that song can never be used in a comic situation, which is important for those people who have bought that song, for people like yourself who love that song. So the biz marketing was, I said no. But they went ahead and, and did it anyway. Ah. So that meant that I had to then go to New York and the lawyers and, and go to court. And here's the irony. I mean, I have to go to court and Bismarck is not even there. And so, but the great thing was the judge was cool because I'm the first person on the stand uh, after getting, I mean, I spent days with lawyers and, and they're, they're rehearsing me about what to do and what to say. <laughs> I'm thinking, what is going on here? Anyway, the judge was quite clear, and how it ended up was the the judge turned around because this is autumn of the year, and said uh, because uh, Bismarck's record label was Warner Brothers, uh, the, the judge said if you don't pull this thing off immediately, I'll have every Warner Brothers product taken out. Well, the shit hit the fan big time, and um, by the time we walked back to the office, it was all over, and and it was ended. But you know, I didn't want to. To, to cause that fuss. I mean, Bismarck, all he had to do was decline, accept the, the fact that, that he couldn't do it. So, uh, but it yeah. set, if there's a positive thing that comes out of that, it's the fact that it does set a precedent because it becomes the first sampling case to go to court. So therefore, people for the future then could cite the O'Sullivan case as, as to the reason for their track uh, being sampled and the right to, to refuse or to get paid for it. 
Yeah, it's a landmark uh, ruling that that changed stuff. You, yeah. you you need permission, which seems like an yeah. obvious thing, but I guess it yeah. wasn't. No, yeah. You mentioned Japan earlier. You're huge, gig- giant in Japan. Uh, I mean, you're big all around the world, but huge in Japan. Why do you think that is? No, I wouldn't say huge. We're popular there. I don't know. I mean, they've always liked, they learn their English. I mean, people, it's, perhaps it's a cliche to say that, but you hear other performers say that. They, um, they, they're good on the words. They like the words. I mean, every album that they release in, in Japan has the, the Japanese lyric um, translation and it has the English. They, they, they tell you that they, they, they use song lyrics, uh, helps them with their English and stuff. Oh, yeah, we got on really well. The band love it when we go there. We'll probably be going. We were there uh, just some you know, end of last year and we'll probably be going again early next year. So it's great. I mean, it's just nice that people like, like it. What more can you ask for? <laughs> Yeah, uh, you mentioned that uh, your I think it's your nineteenth uh, record came out last year, uh, and uh, again it's a top forty a charting album. Uh, it seems like you're uh, working as crazy as ever. How many hours do you spend these days writing songs in a week? Well, it, it, the the current album, how it works is this: that that so BMG are my record company. So yeah, they agree they want me to make an album. And so I, who's going to produce it? So they make a list of producers. Ethan Johns is one of the top of the list there. So Ethan Johns is cool. His dad was Glyn Johns, who produced the Rolling Stones, did some Who stuff and Beatles stuff. And so I meet up with Ethan for a cup of tea in a hotel in London. He says, well, you know, if I'm going to work with you, I need to hear the songs. So he comes to my home here in Jersey, in the Channel Islands. And all he hears are melodies with, with made-up words. And I wanted to kind of make the album quite rocky. I had rocky songs. I wanted to kind of do a few of those. But Ethan wasn't into that. And I also had songs on electric piano. Ethan doesn't like electric piano. So, so but, but I, you know, whatever he wanted to hear that he liked, I had. And I was playing him stuff that he really liked, which I didn't think he would like. So that was nice. So we picked the, 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 the music and then that's when I then sit down to write the words. So the writing process for me is basically, if I need a melody, um, uh, Michael, I'll sit at the piano five days a week, four weeks a month t- to get it. Uh, if I've got the melody, then uh, when it's time to make a record, I'll write the words. I never finish a song unless I'm actually going to record it. Uh, to, to, because I, don't, I, I feel lyrically, I tend to be quite topical. And so if I wrote a lyric today that was stuck in a trunk for a year or so, it's arguable that what I would be singing about would not as be as... as fashionable as perhaps it is today so that's uh you live in you mentioned jersey in the channel islands which is closer to france i believe than it is to england yeah. tell me what's life like there what do you do when you're not what, working what's french's influence you know there's 50 minutes by boat to saint malo and uh, you could go in the morning on the boat and have lunch over there and come back in the afternoon it's really nice there's no motorways it's it's lots of cars I and mean, i don't drive i just it's nice here i mean it's great for me to ride i'm talking to you now you know, up up here in my music room, which which is a little room which I cordon off. So you know, piano's here, everything is here. So this this is my world up here till five o'clock. And so if I'm in a writing mode, it's nine to five. My wife is very supportive. Uh, my daughter works for me. She does social media, and so it's magic. I mean, I love it here. It's a good place, obviously, to have two daughters, and they came here when they started school. So it's it's been great. Love it here, and it's very healthy. It's a good place. You know, the, the the air is good. Wonderful beaches, uh, and and a nice place to live, Michael. You should come. If you're ever in the UK, and you've, it takes thirty five minutes to fly to Jersey. It sounds lovely. From the, yeah, it is nice. 
at the City Winery in Manhattan Tuesday. That's the 9th. And uh, the World Cafe in Philadelphia Wednesday the 10th. Uh, boy, I, it sounds like you've got tons of energy and you are raring to go. And uh, and sounds like you must be excited. Uh, have you been to the States just for pleasure in yeah. this 45 years? Yeah. So you're, you're yeah. looking forward to New York City? Well, I have a house in Nashville because, uh, because we recorded the album before last, which was called Gilbertville. As you, do you know there's a place called Gilbertville in the States? No. Yeah, it's called Gilbertville. So, so the last album was Latinology based on the Peggy Lee. Uh, I'm a huge Peggy Lee fan, and I did right. a duet with her. So Latin, she did an album called Latinology, so we did the Latinology, and we, re, we reproduced the cover the way she was on her cover. Yes, um, exactly but the album, right. before that, the album before that was called Gilbertville, so, so that was recorded in Nashville. So we, I bought a house there to be able to record there in Hendersonville, which is the old Nashville, where Johnny Cash, um, Roy Orbison lived. Magical place. Uh, so it was a great album using Nashville musicians, you know, pop songs. Uh, one of the songs I did there, on that album uh, I'm looking forward to playing in America it's called All They Wanted to Say which is about an aspect of the, of the, the New York um, the, the calamitous two towers um, um, you know the, the, the whole 9-11 uh, so it's so I'm kind of looking forward to that so yeah so you know so the house in Nashville so I, we go there we'll be going there again after New York and um, we go to Vegas every couple of years for New Year. Don't gamble. We just like to go and see the acts. I mean, I've seen Neil Diamond. I've seen James Brown there. I've seen Van Morrison there. I've seen the Eagles there. Uh, it's a great place to see concerts. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and you can just walk. Uh, you have yeah. such a great, great ear for pop music and for hooks and stuff. I mean, can you just off the top of your head, tell me three or four of your just favorite all time uh, records to listen to. And, you know, if you're have the radio on something, you're you're pleased when comes on the radio. Well, I, Johnny Mitchell, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge Johnny Mitchell fan. She was a big influence on me in, in her first album, her chords. I tried to play the piano the way she played her chords on the guitar. So she was a big influence. Uh, I love um, I love Randy Newman. Feels like home again. It's a wonderful song. So you know, I, I have lots of songs that I that, that I enjoy li- that I listen to. Um, just just to, to enjoy listening to early Dylan stuff. I still enjoy playing. And uh, but uh, at the moment, I'm playing quite a bit of Joni Mitchell, both sides now and and stuff like that. Yeah, quite a so unique. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, well, it's wonderful to talk to you and wonderful to sort of uh, get the stories behind the things and just, just to kind of get your energy. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it makes sense when you listen to all the songs because they, they do come from this very unique perspective. Uh, the point of view of, of the songs is very you, I think. So I was, I was, it's nice to put the voice and the person uh, to, to the songs. Uh, good well, luck. Yeah, well, well, you, well, you know, one thing interesting, we've yeah. just finished a German tour and stuff, so which is really good uh, all over Germany and stuff. It was really nice. But the, what I'm lo- what I'm looking forward to coming to America is that of course it's English speaking, and so so I feel because it is very up close and personal, uh, over two and a quarter hours. So we have a break in the middle for ten, for a quarter of an hour. So and, you know, and it covers every aspect of my career, and incorporating some new songs, album stuff, and, and plus all the singles that were successful. So it, 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 I'm really looking forward to performing in front of an English speaking audience in America. So I'm really excited about that, and I just hope that people enjoy it as much as I'm looking forward to to doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they will. The first time in 45 years, uh, and you never know when you'll be back. City Winery, New York City on the 9th, uh, World Cafe, Philadelphia, the 10th. Uh, Gilbert O'Sullivan, thanks so much. It's been a total pleasure. Ryan, thanks, Mike. Good to talk to you.
Well, go home as I did on my 
reflected on me yesterday. I was cheerful, bright, and gay. Looking forward to well, who wouldn't do the role I was about to play. But as if to knock me down, reality came around. And without so much as a mere touch, cut me into little pieces. Leaving me to doubt, talk about God in his Broken in the world that can't be mended Left unattended What do we do? What do we do? My girl's inside. So he jetted off, leaving two tracks. Not at one time did homeboy look back. It took me an hour to get where I was going and to top it all off. It had to start showing. My sneakers was old and my coat was thin. But my determination kept me warm with this. I had nobody to help me, as you can see. I'm alone again, naturally. Alone again. So I went into the show and started maxing. People came up to me and started asking what's up with me and what I'm getting on and how many records is Shantae gonna perform. I don't know, but now I gotta go cause Shantae is calling me to do the show. First she was on and then she called me out. I did a lot of funky beats without no doubt. I put the mic on my head and began to rip. The crowd began to flip cause I was rocking the ship. When we was done, I started to laugh. Mars of people come to me for my autograph. After the front was over, it was time to race. If I was riding, it would be the icing on the cake. As I saw Shantae get into a limo, I had to walk home. I wrote it in my memo. I'm alone again, naturally. All alone again, naturally. Now my eye, nothing to 
worry wherever I wanna go. I get there in a hurry, that's right, I'm big time. Very well known, now I'm slayer rhymes instead of beats on the microphone. Right about now, I'm gonna explain. It was cool VTD Swan and the big daddy Kane doing shows all together as one group. None of us acting big headed or soup. Then after that, we all formed a block. I paid everybody, told them how they rock. They all grabbed their props and went their separate ways. Swan said, I'll see you later, bitch, in a couple of days. When people see me leave, like I'm at my jammer, it's like if I was full with stars, lights, and glamour. But when Vaughn came home, he thought I was in somewhere with a girl, I was in bed. Alone again, naturally. I'm alone again, naturally. And when she passed away, I cried and cried all 
in a little while from now If I'm not feeling any less sour I promise myself to treat myself And visit a nearby town And climbing to the top Will throw myself off In an effort to make it clear to whoever What it's like when you're shattered Left standing in the lurch At a church where people say My God, that's tough, she stood him up I was cheerful, bright and gay Looking forward to when I wouldn't do the role I was about to play But as if to knock me down Reality came around And without so much as a mere touch Cut me into little pieces Leaving me to doubt Talk about God and His mercy Who if He really does exist Why did He Why the only man she had ever loved had been taken 